0: The last couple of years have certainly been stormy, and they've had plenty of their clouds with the problems that seem to be in them. But this morning, we've got a pleasure to, we have the privilege of experiencing one of the blessings that's come out of those stormy times. Joel Hunter is going to bring the message. Thank you, brother. Tyler and Mike, were here to, like, I think, 1 o'clock last night, setting up for this morning. These folks have worked so hard on this, on this uh, chancel area. That's a high, high church terminology for what I'm on right now. And it is, this is neat. I, what's happening here is that you're making a statement of boldness about lifting up God's truth here. And that whoever presents God's truth needs to be in a place where people can see that presenter, that teacher, and they need to not have the distraction from that communication of looking around people's heads. And this is a statement, you know, of you know, what, what, the first thing I said when I came in here to the folks that were working yesterday was the, the thing I love about this church is I've never seen it do anything halfway yet. And, and that includes... It's walk with the Lord, I hope. And that's what I'm going to be talking about this morning. The scripture reading for this morning comes from the fourth chapter of Ephesians. I would like to kind of go over a little ground that I alluded to in last Sunday's tape when I had that little message right at the end. And uh, uh, just let me start reading it. It's talking uh, in the 10th through the 12th verse about the spiritual gifts and how God gives them to all of us for the equipping of the saints to build up the body of Christ. Now, I'm going to start with verse 13. Until, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature man, we're talking about spiritual maturity here, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Remember that word? As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and trickery of men and by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, I'm going to preach about that phrase today. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up, that's another word for maturity, in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up itself of itself in love. I want to talk to you this morning about two things. First of all, about speaking the truth. Now, nobody in his right mind would ever go against uh, speaking the truth Um, But I want to to bring to you the nuances that you don't don't read in your scripture in the English version. Speaking the truth in the original scripture, the Greek word is aletheo. But it means more than just speaking the truth. It means to be inhabited by the truth. It means to walk in the truth. It means to be confirmed in the truth. There's a Hebrew word that is his cousin, Yemet. And that means to have a relationship with the truth. Now, I want you to notice today that there are two different kinds of thinking when it comes to Scripture reasoning or any other kind of reasoning. There are two different views of the truth, and both of them are valid. But I want you to know the difference. I want you to have discernment in your spiritual life. One is a Greek form of thinking. The Greeks were great folks for intellectualization for conceptualization and knowing the truth in greek thought was being able to apprehend the concept to be able to go beyond history to the substance behind the appearance that was that was extra historical that is it never it didn't matter whether it ever happened or not the truth in the greek mind was something that you could conceive of. Now, we use that kind of truth in modern day teaching, in philosophy, in colleges. And that is very valuable stuff. We like to know things or be able to conceptualize things. That's valuable stuff. But there's another kind of truth, and that is the truth that is presented in the Bible... There is a deeper meaning to truth, and that's what I don't want you to miss. It's the Hebrew form of truth. You see, in the Hebrew form of truth, truth is truth because you can rely on it, because you have experienced it. Not because you can conceive of it or possess it, but because it possesses you. There's a depth and a tenacity in the Hebrew form of truth that is in this scripture that you need to grab a hold of. You see, in Hebrew, God was not God because he acted beyond history. He was God because he acted in history. God was not God because they could understand him. God was God because they could stand on his promises. I like that. (laughs) Solid, isn't it? Yes, sir. It's solid. God was God because they could experience him. Now there's a difference between preaching and teaching. Teaching is Greek oriented and we need that. Preaching is Hebrew oriented and we need that. Teaching stretches your mind. Preaching grabs your innards. And you know a lot of churches don't know the difference between preaching and teaching, but they are two sides of the same coin and both of them need to be able to be done. In my ministry, I've usually done the preaching on Sunday morning because that's when you're most likely to get the folks in the body that are not well-versed in in Scripture and they're not really looking for just intellectual stretching. They're looking to be grabbed. You know, most people come to the body on Sunday morning because they've had something happen in their life or something that is not quite going right and they want something to say, I'm going to give you a feeling of solidness. I'm going to lift you up. That's what they need. And that's why they need preaching on Sunday morning. But you also need teaching on Sunday evening. Let me go a little bit further, just just by way of explanation. In the Bible, you can know Jesus Christ. You can believe in Jesus Christ. But that always means following Jesus Christ. That is why so many of you can look around and you can see people who say they believe in Jesus Christ today and never follow Him because they're thinking in Greek terms, not Hebrew terms. If you say, do you believe in God the Father? They'll say, yeah, I believe in God. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Sure I do. I have since I was a little kid. But there seems to be no evidence in their life that they are possessed by that truth, that something's reaching down inside of them by it. They're thinking in Greek terms, and they're talking accurately as they know accuracy, but that's not biblical language. In biblical language, Adam knew Eve, and they begat Cain and Abel. Does that sound like an intellectual relationship to you? No, sir. There was something of action there, wasn't there? There was something very intimate, very personal. See, that wasn't a mind trip. I want you to know that when Jesus wailed at the Pharisees in Matthew 23, and he remembered God complaining to Isaiah, and he was saying, These people's lips worship me, but their heart is far from me. He was complaining against Greek worship, and he was longing for Hebrew worship. And he looked at. I'm sorry. That's in that's in Mark Mark seven six. This is in this is in Matthew twenty three, where he's starting to rail at the Pharisees, and he's saying, "You big jerks." That's my translation. He's saying, "You got the outside of the cup clean, and the inside of the cup is filthy." First, he says, "You've got to clean the inside of the cup, and then the outside of the cup will become clean." You see, that is a Greek differentiation. And Jesus was longing for a Hebrew relationship to truth. That's when it's strong. When you know that it's strong in your life, then you know it's strong. That is so important. Let me show you something. Here's, here's a way that you can always remember. If you, if you have your Bibles with you, if you turn to the 8th chapter of Acts, that's the 5th book into the New Testament, go to the big number 8, And then we'll be... I'm just going to pick out some verses that begin with uh, verse 9. And it's talking about Simon who was formerly, it says, was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And then he began to listen to the gospel. They were giving attention to him. And it says, And when they believed Philip... ...preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Then the people began to believe in Jesus. They were baptized. And then look at verse 13. It says, "...even Simon himself believed." And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip and, and observed the signs and so on and so forth. And then they lay their hands upon these people and these people begin to receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And when Simon, now look at verse number 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the, apostle hands, the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me this authority so that everyone on whom I, I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit and Peter said you jerk your silver and gold perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money you have no portion part or portion of this matter for now look your heart is not right before God you understand what he's doing he believes but he believes in a Greek sense And he thinks that Christianity is something you can take and use instead of something that uses you. And so he thinks Christianity is something that you can manipulate instead of something that manipulates you. And what Peter is saying to him is, Look, brother, don't try to take the most powerful force in the universe and be above it. And use it if you want to, when you feel like it, for your own glory. That's Greek thinking. In Greek thinking, you're always in control. In Hebrew thinking, he is always in control. So when we talk about speaking the truth, I want you to know that in order to do that in the biblical sense, there has to be something happen inside you. Let me tell you a story about a Dr. Stephen Kane. Saint, uh, there, there is a Kane Summit Memorial Hospital in New York. This was his family's, uh, uh, he contributed a lot of money and, and the hospital was named uh, for him. Back in the 19, he was a, he was a surgeon, back in the 1920s. Uh, he was a very successful physician and as some physicians do, they, he, he had an area that just fascinated him and, and his, his, he was a surgeon but the area that really fascinated him was anesthesiology. Now, Dr. Kane believed that many times giving a general anesthetic was too radical a treatment for the kind of surgery that he needed to do. He also noted that there were some dangers inherent in general, uh, general anesthetic, giving a general to somebody. For example, if somebody had lung problems or somebody had a heart condition, that was a very dangerous thing to do. So he began to believe that a local anesthetic, that is just anesthetizing one part of the body that was to be affected by the surgery, was the way to go. But he had a problem. Back in that day, people were very afraid of that kind of concept. Their two main fears, of course, were their queasiness at being awake through it all, and what if it wears out? before, you know, what if it goes away? You ever have it when you go to the dentist, give me eight shots, I don't want this to wear off. That was, that was where they were at. You know, hey, we're not gonna try that because what if you, this is new and if you're inside of me and the painkiller goes away, then we're all gonna be in trouble. So what Dr. Kane had to do was to recruit a volunteer for a fairly major piece of surgery back in that day talk them into a local anesthetic in order to prove his point. Well, he did find such a volunteer. And the morning of February 23rd, I think it was 1924, the patient was wheeled into the operating room. The local anesthetic was administered. And Dr. Kane began the appendectomy. He had done 4,000 appendectomies in his 30-some years of surgery. This one would be no different. He would slice the tissue. He would clamp it back. He would go in. He would find, I will I'll spare you the details, but find the appendix, bend it over, uh, exorcise it, sew the tissues back up. The volunteer was then wheeled to the recovery room. The recovery rate was above what it was normally. And Dr. Kane had proved his point to the world. But he had really proved his point to the world because The patient, the volunteer that he had found was the same as the doctor. 1924, Dr. Cain proved his point by performing an appendectomy on himself. Now, I tell you that story because I want to tell you what it is going to take to prove the truth to the world. See, the world is afraid of power of anything new, of anything that is not already in their lives. But if you can perform, believe in something so much that you perform it on yourself, that it comes from the inside, then you will be, in a Hebrew sense, speaking the truth. Let me go to the second part of the phrase. In love, in love. You know, all through the Bible... Truth and mercy are linked. Proverbs 3.3 3 says this. Never lose kindness and truth. Never lose kindness and truth. Bind them around your neck. Write them upon the tablets of your heart. See how they're linked? You read the Old Testament. Read Psalms. Read Exodus. Exodus 34. It mentions mercy and truth. Psalms uh, 54 uh, uh, 40 57 85 86 100 so on and so forth every time you look there's mercy and truth mercy and truth mercy and truth truth is not something cold and steely unless you speak the truth in love you are not speaking it in a biblical sense and love is the way to open People for truth. Truth will simply drop down unreceived unless you speak it in love. You know why? Because people's basic need is to be loved. We can get along without the truth. You know that? People do it all the time. But people cannot survive without love. They hunger for love. Let me tell you something. When I went to Ohio University my first semester there. I lived in James Hall, which was a men's dormitory, and there was a women's dormitory called Wilson Hall, and we came together at Grosvenor Cafeteria, right between the two. And that first semester, uh, the cafeteria was open from five through seven or something like that. I had a late class, so I'd go to that every day, and there were two serving lines, and I would go into the cafeteria, and what do you always do when there's a shorter line? You go to the shorter line, you wanna get served first. So I'd get there late, and, and and starting out, they were both basically the same, so I just went to the one line. And then the one line that I was going to kept getting shorter, and the other line kept getting longer. Well, that was okay with me, because I was hungry, and I'd go over and stand in a shorter line. That's what I wanted. That's what I was there for. But after a while, I got to be curious. And I thought, what kind of food are these people? First, I thought it was a more efficient line. You know, these, these folks are just turning up. But that didn't that didn't explain why one line was longer than the other. So I I got my food one night and I ate it. And then I went and looked in the other line to see if they had the same food we had. Sure enough, they had the same food, same thing, came out of the same kitchen. One night, I was not so very hungry that I could not satisfy my curiosity. And I went over in that other line and I stood for twice as long as I would have had to stand in that one line over there. And I got in this doorway and there was a guy there, I did not know his name, but he was the first person you came to on that cafeteria line. called Steve called him the meat man because he passed out the meat dish. And every person that came through that line, he had some kind word to say some word of mercy. And later on, I was to get a job as a vegetable man working two men down from Steve. And I listened to Steve over and over and over again. Never knew that man's last name, never did, but it didn't didn't matter. Somebody would come through the door and he'd spot him and he knew a freshman (laughs) and he'd say, how's it going? And they say, oh, I had a test today. It was horrible. And Steve would say, hey, don't you get down about that. You're going to do great. I believe in you. You're going to do super. Don't you get down about that. That's going to be all right. He says, just a minute. I'm going to search through. I'm going to find you a special piece of meat in here. And he'd search all through. He'd put it on the plate. And he'd get say, there you go. That'll fix you up. And then, and then, and then somebody comes. To, we had a guy named a tackle on the football team, Beef Peters. Nobody knew what his first name was. They called him Beef. And Beef would come through and kind of growl. And he'd say, Beef, what's happening? And say, Beef would go, urgh. And Steve would go, oh, Beef, you're bad. You are so bad. We are so, oh. You're... And Beef would go, urgh. And he'd say, oh, we're so lucky to have you on the football team. You're such an animal. You are so tough. And Beef would grin a little bit. And then he'd catch it and so he'd go, urgh. He'd say, let me search here for a big piece of meat for you, Beef. You need a big piece. And boy, boy, that's the biggest piece of meat I got there. And he'd hand it over to Beef. Beep grrr, and he'd go down the line. <laughs> See, yeah, it's true. It's true, it happened. And little Henry had come through, the chemical student, you know, with the horn rim glasses and the slide rule on the belt. Remember when people used to carry around slide rules? I, I miss those slide rules. I thought those were pretty neat. Little engineer type, little chemical sea guy, and come through and say, Henry, how you doing? And Henry said, "Well, I'm doing all right." He'd say, "Henry, I'm so I am so grateful for people like you. Where would we get our rocket fuel if we didn't have people like you?" And Henry said, "Oh, well, thank you very much, but we could get it from German students. They're very disciplined. They're very good." They <laughs> say, "No, Henry." He say, "You're America's hope. We need you." See, the long and the short of it was that that line got longer and longer and longer because people needed. More than food. They needed love. They needed encouragement. And Steve knew that. And so people stood in that line to be fed, not food, but love. There were professors that would come down and stand in that line, telling everybody they wanted to be with the students. But they needed that same thing. They needed That love So when you speak the truth You've got to speak it In love Love without truth is useless It's wishy-washy It's floppy It's silly But truth without love is cruel You've got to speak it In love For the building up of the body To be unified In the spirit That's what people need And how do you do it? Let me give you just a common sense first step and then I'll I'll be quiet and we'll talk uh, later about the greatest act of love and the greatest act of truth. I heard a story once about a young boy in the hills of Germany who lived a long time ago and and he lived in in the hills but there was a village down below and back at this time um, the craftsmen of the village all did their craft in their windows so that people could see them operate in their craft it's something like the art shows that we have today and you would go down and you would see the pottery maker doing his pottery in the window and you would see the cobbler doing his shoemaking in the window and so on and so forth well One day, this little boy asked his mother if he wasn't big enough to go down down into town alone with his friend. And his mother determined that he was big enough. That would be fine. And so they raced down into into the town. And they were going along the windows. And they watched the pottery maker make the pots. And they watched the cobbler in the shoes. And they came along to the woodcarver's window. And he was carving on this huge block of wood. Absolutely huge block of wood. And they stood there for a while. And they got this game going between them. They were trying to decide what he was carving. And he'd carved for a long time. It was early in the day, and he'd carved for a long time. And they thought that they saw some a veranda come out, and they thought they saw uh, a, the slope of a roof. And, and one little boy knocked on the window, and he said, I know what you're carving in there. I know what you're carving. That's a chalet. That is another word for a French house with a balcony. And, uh, and the old man had grin, and he'd smile, and he'd chopped off. The pillars and he chopped off the slope of the roof and he'd go a little bit longer and they thought they saw the paddles of a boat and they saw thought they saw the shape of a bow huge boat and the other little boy knock on the window he said I know what you're carving in there I know what you're carving you're carving a boat a paddle boat and the old man grinned, and he chopped off the paddles and he smoothed over the bow well, one little boy got frustrated, but this other boy was bound and determined that he would guess what this old man was carving. So he came out of the window and went in and sat down beside him on that bench. And the old man kept on carving, and the little boy kept looking at what he was carving. And the old t- all the time, the old man was saying, what's, what's your name? And he'd tell him his name. Who's your family? He'd tell him his family. And a boy would see a trunk take shape. And Tusks take shape and he'd jump up and say, It's an elephant, it's an elephant. I knew it all the time, it's an elephant. Off had come the tusk. Off had come the trunk. And he'd sat back down and start looking at it again. He'd talk to the old man and said, You got any grandkids? Always oh, looking at the thing. Yeah, I've got several grandchildren. And he started telling about his grandchildren. And the little boy would look at it and he thought he saw a tail and legs and a long neck. And he jumped up and he said, It's a horse. That's what it is. It's a horse. Off came the tail. Off came the legs. Well, the long and the short of it is that he stayed there for the entire afternoon talking with that old man, never taking his eyes off that wood carving. And it got down to a little bitty block. And the boy saw a long neck and a beak and wings swept back and he stood up and he said it's a swan it was a swan all the time and off came the neck and off came the wings and the old man had no wood left and that boy was indignant he stood up and he said i'm so mad at you I've been sitting here all afternoon trying to guess the answer to this thing, and all the time, you weren't making anything. The old man looked at him and said, Sure I was. I was making the opportunity for us to get to know one another. For us to get to know one another. Now please look. More important than any truth is closeness. More important than any answer is nearness. More important than any solution is love. When Jesus Christ was born, he was named Emmanuel, God with us. He wasn't named Christ is the answer, he was named God with us and he gives us the chance first of all to be with one another Amen